You're listening to episode 121 of the Room to Grow podcast. I'm Emily Goff, a podcasting coach, lifestyle entrepreneur, and a Canadian with a sense of curiosity and adventure, always asking more questions and using stories to connect with and positively impact others. Here on the Room to Grow podcast, we're going deep into big topics like relationships, mental health, business, confidence, lifestyle, personal development, and entrepreneurship, and being open, honest, and real about how to learn from tough lessons along the way when life throws you into the unexpected. I bring you thoughts and guests with stories that will change the way you look at the world and yourself so that we can learn from each other and grow with lots of self-love and compassion every step of the way. There's always more room to grow. Are you ready? Let's do this. Hey, hey, welcome back to the Room to Grow podcast. And oh my gosh, guys, I'm so excited to share this interview with you. I have the absolute pleasure of getting to chat with Megan Bruno today. I adore her. I have adored her for ages. Um, if you are not following her on Instagram in particular, please go do so. She has so much great content that comes out and she just has that kind of content that just makes you drop everything and go, whoa, I need to think about that some more and really absorb that. <laughs> so she is amazing. I'm so thrilled to have her on. A little bit about Megan, she was quoted uh, by Deepak Chopra as the millennials therapist and Megan's no bullshit relatable voice has garnered over 30 million views and landed appearances on all kinds of major places all over North America. Uh, she's very transparent about her own mental health, her eating disorder history, frequent heartaches and uncertain entrepreneurial life in New York City and Megan's vulnerable and humorous writing style has inspired dozens of viral articles. This woman is just incredible. She has a Master of Arts in Counseling Psychology and a Bachelor of Arts in Psychology and Social Work. 12 plus years of experience providing crisis support, therapy and coaching, a registered clinical counselor, and she sees clients globally as a coach as well. Megan shares her personal experiences alongside her professional expertise, and she really seeks to change the way people relate to their inner and outer worlds. That just sums her up to an absolute T. She is just such an amazing woman. And in this episode, I reached out to Megan initially because she did, I'd wanted to reach out to her for a while about various topics, but then she did an Instagram story one day about the breadcrumbs of hope. And it struck me on such a deep level, and I absolutely fell in love with the fact that in order to best explain the breadcrumbs of hope, she was at a co-working space, and she was drawing little diagrams, like on napkins and pieces of paper, and posting them on her stories, but they beautifully, they so beautifully summed up this concept that she was trying to explain. I just loved it, and I was like, Megan, I have to have you on the podcast to talk about this. So in terms of breadcrumbs of hope, it's really these reinforcement hits that we get when we're hanging on to a relationship that isn't serving us, but it keeps roping us back in for more. So we're really going to dig into that a lot. We also talk about attachment issues, uh, the moments of validation that we search for, and this entire concept of the pain time continuum that can spike our pain when we think we're walking away to the point where it keeps us stuck. We talk about the cost of compassion and what we can do when we have an overabundance of compassion. Loneliness, manipulation, guilt, shame, and self-sabotage, uh, compromise versus boundaries, which I think is a really important discussion to have about relationships as well. And this concept we seem to have that creativity has to come from pain. That is something that is so crucial for us to dig into. I think, uh, especially anyone in the creative space, I think it's really, really important to dive into that a little bit more. So I don't want to tie this up any longer. I want to send things over to Megan so that you can hear how fantastic she is. So let's dive in. 
Hey there, welcome back to the Room to Grow podcast. And I have been dying to have today's guest on for so long. Megan Bruneau is with us today. Megan, I'm so pumped that you're here today. I'm so pumped to be here. Thanks for being so excited to have me. Oh my gosh. I, I seriously am. You've been on my list for a long time. <laughs> I hope we can deliver. <laughs> you absolutely will. It's funny. Megan and I were just saying to each other as we were jumping on, I was like, man, I didn't get much sleep last night and I can't hold a thought. And you're like, I just took some cold medication. <laughs> like so, so day cold up right now. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Day I love matcha. it. It's like, you know, recipe success is a door disaster. <laughs> the fact that I just couldn't form that sentence. <laughs> That's okay. We're, we're going to make this well worth everyone's listening experience. So Megan, tell us a little bit about you. I am always blown away at how much I feel like you've accomplished in a really short period of time. So tell us all about you and uh, where you are and what you're, what you're doing. Sure. Um, and thank you for saying that. It's funny. I mean, of course, we never, we never see ourselves the way other people see us. Um, I am, so my, my trade is I'm a therapist. I was, I have a master's in counseling psychology and I've done that for about a decade. Um, and uh, in most, most recent years, though, I kind of started to do a lot more um, executive coaching and coaching uh, in addition to therapy. Um, and I write and I speak and I have a podcast, although I haven't released an episode in forever, but I might get back to that eventually and uh, put things on Instagram. And really everything is kind of under the umbrella of doing shit that scares you, you know, and helping people overcome perfectionism. Um, my like the very, very short version of my long journey was that I personally struggled with eating disorders and depression and anxiety and uh, didn't really realize until I started really breaking myself open and doing the work that it was all all because of perfectionism and all really just because I didn't know how to be with my uncomfortable feelings and I was really hard on myself and I put my self-worth into like outcomes and achievements and I had these like really unrealistically high inflexible expectations. And so through a lot of my own work and, um, you know, spiritual work and stuff practice and whatnot, I, um, completely changed my relationship to myself and my emotions. And then I realized that like so many different manifestations of perfectionism, whether it's eating disorders or depression or anxiety or, you know, um, sort of like career stagnancy, not taking risks or addictions or people who don't want to date because, you know, of course they're afraid of, of all the discomfort that that entails, which we'll probably get into today. Um, it's, it's really all just kind of like the same thing. So I have like various different applications of that. You know, I, I have like like a dating course, for example, and I have, um, and I work a lot with like entrepreneurs, helping them recognize places where they're actually holding themselves back from success because of perfectionism or because of some of those things I mentioned. Um, but really everything's just under the umbrella of like mental health and, and helping people like learn how to like, like themselves and, and life a little more. I really like how you mentioned that too, about the different manifestations of perfectionism, because this can come up in so many different ways, especially as entrepreneurs, because I feel like, and particularly as female entrepreneurs, because a lot of women are moms as well. And we're also trying to deal with, you know, all the body image bullshit and totally. <laughs> relationships and trying to build a business at the same time. And it can just start manifesting in every single area. So I really like how you come at it with such a well-rounded approach and you've got uh, so much um, personal experience for better or for worse in so many of these different areas as well that I think really, really shines through in your work in a really positive way. Thank you. Yeah. Well, I mean, we teach what we know, right? And I th think like, I'm always really open about, I don't love the term like wounded healer because like, I, I don't know. I mean, I think everyone is like wounded in some way, right? Like, um, but I think that like those of us, most of us who are healers, like we've, we've 
we are, we are that way because, you know, we either wanted to figure ourselves out or we had some kind of pain or we took care of someone with some kind of pain or whatever. And, you know, that has all sorts of, of challenges that comes along with that. So I think like, I just, yeah, I, I, in our world of social media where people are like putting out a lot of like very inauthentic shit, like I, um, which is contributes to what exactly what you were saying, people, women, women particularly feeling like they have to have like, you know, perfect bodies and be, you know, the perfect mom, but also be an entrepreneur and also be like working and also have like a happy relationship and a clean home and, you know, travel and, and whatever, consume information and, and put out information and whatnot. I just try to like put a bit more, um, I don't know, like authentic stuff out there that says like, Hey, like I'm, I'm fucked up too. <laughs> like we all are, you know, we're in this together. No, I, I really love your honesty because I just, I feel like I, authenticity is becoming, um, kind of the, I feel like the currency in which we trade a little bit on social media, which is really, really positive. Um, because I, I think that we, we can smell bullshit, right? So we can sense when somebody is much more authentic and there's a lot of power in that, but you, I, I feel like are really set apart from the crowd because you kind of take it to that next level. And I love when you do, uh, your ask me anything series is, is it series is, is that, is that a word? Yeah, Whatever yeah. the plural is of series, <laughs> series like an apostrophe at the end. Yes, but, there we go. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> this is what we mean about like, me yeah. don't function today. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, when you do those types of series on Instagram stories and you post really beautiful, complete, whole thoughts and, and really thoughtful responses to people. And one of the ones that really stood out to me and why I reached out to you initially was because you did a whole one on breadcrumbs of hope in relationships. And it got my attention even more because you literally drew a physical and diagram and posted the photo with explanation for like each stage of it and I loved it and I'm like I have to have this girl in the podcast (laughs) so tell us a little bit about like what the heck are we talking about with breadcrumbs of hope and what what is it that that you want people to know the most about this before we kind of like dig deeper into it yeah well oh my gosh there's like so much I so the breadcrumbs of hope thing. So first of all, I don't want to take credit for that way of describing it because that was like a um, a follower, I guess. Is what I'm like, was it a listener? Was it a reader? Like, what do you call? It? It's a yeah, a follower who who reached out and asked about like the breadcrumbs of hope. Um, I can't remember where that terminology came from, but I definitely didn't come up with it. But uh, you know, breadcrumbs of hope is is an experience that many of us have, especially this day and age in dating, where. Um, we're probably not in like an ideal relationship situation. Um, but we get this kind of like intermittent reinforcement, which like, if you know anything about reinforcement or behavioral, um, psychology, intermittent reinforcement is like the worst fucking kind because it's like what it's like what you get when you're gambling you know it's like you could not you could lose so much money and then you get like one win and you're like hooked still and it's the same thing with being in relationships like you know you could be dating a really shitty like dude or woman or whatever and I mean you know I that's sort of reductive to say just a shitty dude but like someone who isn't meeting your needs we'll say is a far more diplomatic way of saying it um and you, you probably know that on like a conscious level but then you get these little like crumbs like you have this moment of validation where it's like you know they're not present they're not present they're not present they're not responding to your texts you know they're not introducing you to their friends they're not like they don't want to see your apartment like they don't want to like actually take you on real dates um you know you're not you don't feel super like secure and supported they're maybe not they're not the first person you're calling if you're going through something 
um, you definitely don't feel secure in the relationship. You know, I know for me, it's like, if I still can't take my makeup off before I go to bed with them, like that's the sign that I'm like not feeling secure. Um, Isn't that true? Oh my God. I'm so glad you brought that up. That's a hundred percent accurate. <laughs> right? like, I'm like, when will I reach the point where I can take off my mascara? <laughs> Because like, my eyelashes really need to break. Like, <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> my skin is like in disaster. Right. Um, so, so, like, so you get these like like little like intermittent pieces of reinforcement, and you cling to them, of course, because also like we want to believe what we want to believe, and many of us are like hopeful and optimistic, and like we can definitely get into like the why behind that, and like the attachment issues, and like some of the other. I mean, I have theories around like death anxiety and also like actually not being ready to commit and not wanting to hurt people and like all sorts of reasons as to why we basically date emotionally unavailable people. But, um, but ultimately, yeah, the breadcrumbs of hope is staying in these relationships where we're just getting like a tiny little bit and we're never getting like the whole loaf, you know, just like these little bits and it's deeply lonely and frustrating and unfulfilling and like, you know, we know probably cognitively we deserve so much more and friends are telling you like, that's bullshit. Like you, you know, this is, that's not a healthy relationship and you maybe know on some unconscious level or conscious level that it's not, but it's really, really hard to walk away. And we can talk about why, um, if it's relevant, but the, with regards to the diagram, and I'm like very much in this right now. So it's super relevant because of course I, I know this stuff very deeply because this is how I've lived my life is, is being attracted to people who give me breadcrumbs and that dates back to sort of like childhood issues and stuff like that. Um, but basically um, I think the diagram that you referred to that was really impactful and that I got a lot of um, uh, responses to was if you kind of, if you look at um, pain on a, a, graph and i mean i guess if you've got like your your x-axis and your y-axis and sorry so your y-axis would be um pain and your x-axis would be time um that i'm pretty sure i'm right with this the y-axis is the one that um goes vertically and the x-axis is the one that goes horizontally um so if if you look at pain and if you look at like staying in this relationship that's just giving you breadcrumbs. That's definitely not like, would not be your ideal relationship in which you're experiencing a lot of frustration and, you know, sadness and rejection and disappointment and hurt and confusion and anxiety and whatnot. The pain, it, it stays like relatively stable across time, right? So you can imagine a line that is stable and kind of like, you know, maybe like a, there's like little ups and downs, but it's pretty stable across time throughout like the whole graph. And then if you think of, ending the relationship and walking away, there's an inevitable spike in pain. So you're going to experience more pain initially than you would if you stayed in the relationship, right? Because it's deeply uncomfortable to walk away from these things, especially when we feel like, you know, the, their claws have kind of been hooked into us or we're really attached or whatever. And a lot of that is just survival-based. I mean, for many of us, especially if we have anxious attachment, like we really, um, we, we actually like experience um, a threat of like death. Like we go into deep, anxious fight or flight stage at the thought of this relationship ending. So there will be a spike in pain for sure. But over time, that pain will decrease, 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 and it will go far much, you know, you'll experience far less pain than you would have if you'd stayed in the relationship. So if you kind of look at, you know, toward the end of the, the, the time frame or, you know, further right on the graph, and if you were to compare the lines, then the line uh, associated with ending the relationship is, is like, you know, kind of at like the bottom of uh, like the Y axis or the bottom right corner, right? You're not experiencing very much pain, whereas staying in the relationship would keep you up at the exact same place where you were in the beginning and still quite a bit of pain. Um, I know it's like, 
probably a lot easier to just describe with like a photo, but like, does that, did that make sense? That description? No, no, it definitely did. And for anyone who's wondering, I'm going to, I've taken screenshots of your story. <laughs> so I will post that in, in the blog post. Which by the way, was me like at WeWork, like answering questions and be like, okay, this is, I'll just find a, a random scrap of paper, like scribble a diagram and like take a photo of it with my phone. So it's like not really like, it's definitely not like a pretty graph, but I think it gets the point across. I, you need to like have a designer, like make this all pretty and then you can trademark it or something. <laughs> No, but that makes perfect sense. And I really like how you, how you dug into that too, about when there's like that initial spike of pain, because I can so relate to that, you know, thinking about ending any, any type of relationship, whether it's, it's something that is newer, but you, you maybe, you know, you can see the potential, <laughs> like oh you can see the potential there, or it gives you that dopamine hit sometimes just enough, you know, with those little breadcrumbs that you're like, Oh, this could really be something. Or in my case, like staying in something much longer term and following the carrots, like the carrots or the breadcrumbs or exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's the way one of my therapists, one of my many therapists responded or, you know, described it was like, you know, these like, yes, exactly. The, the, for me, you know, I am attracted to men and like, so it's like, you know, the, um, the man sort of like holding the carrot and like moving it and you get, you just chase it around and that's all you do over and over again. And like trying to seek this validation and this cycle of almost like validation and rejection. And there is, like you said, exactly like a really strong dopamine hit off of that. Um, and you know, again, it may feel familiar too, because that may have been what you were used to in, in childhood or, you know, in past relationships or whatever. And, um, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll, there's, I'll say all sorts of other reasons as to like why we do it and whatnot. Um, but yes, like this, the, the little breadcrumbs, like one of my friends, I, she, she didn't coin the term, I don't think, but she always told me about like the future fakers. And so like, I would go on dates with people and be like, oh yeah, like, oh my gosh, I can't, we, I can't wait for us to like travel to like, you, you haven't been to India, we should totally go to India. Or like, oh, you know, like down the road. Well, when you meet my mom, like um, you'll like, you guys will get along so well because of like this and this and that. And like, so they kind of like drop these little pieces here, here and there. They're like, oh yeah, like I'll eventually commit to you. Like for sure. Eventually like we'll be in a relationship where I see a future. Um, but like, they don't actually act like that in the moment. So you cling to those, right? And like, okay, well, I, I'm an optimist and I'm hopeful. And, you know, there, we have these moments of connection and I can see the potential, but then that connection is totally dismantled and you feel, you know, it, um, shut out or like dismissed or invalidated or undervalued or taken for granted or disrespected or ignored, you know, the list kind of goes on. And really like those feelings are super important to pay attention to. This is, I, I always speak about the importance of uncomfortable feelings and actually listening to them rather than being like, well, we should just focus on the positive. Like if we just focused on the positive and shitty relationships, we wouldn't leave them. So it's actually really important to focus on the negative and to notice all of those places where you're like not being treated in the way that you deserve to be treated. And then to also take responsibility and recognize like, okay, you know, this was this dude's fault for the first couple of months, I will say, because I was getting a lot of mixed messages, but now I kind of like know what I know and at what point do I have to take responsibility and walk away as painful as that is and what do I need to be able to, to actually take that step. And that's such an important part of it because that is, that's where we can actually empower ourselves because if we're just allowing ourselves to be jerked around and, you know, we're bitching to our girlfriends all the time about, Oh, so-and-so, you know, but, but he said this, so I see more of a future or, you know, yeah. he, he did this and this is like this really bright shining light, but then there's all of this other garbage happening. I, that is a really disempowering feeling because totally. we're giving, you know, our entire, we're, we're basically allowing somebody else to control our mood. 
Yeah, and that's exactly. a very dangerous place to get into. That that's really really scary when you start to get to that point. And I think that that's when you have to make the decision. Okay, what is best for me? And do I really see this going anywhere? Am I seeing, like you said, Megan, the the actions to go with the words essentially? Exactly, exactly. And you know, I mean, it's a cliche saying, but like we teach people how to treat us, right? So one of the problems with like um, staying in this pattern for a long time is it's it's enabling. Like it's basically saying, okay, I'll put up with this this behavior. Um, and sometimes like saying, I don't I don't have enough self-respect or self-love, which is oftentimes the case, um, to set a boundary and to say what I need and to get to, because there's so much fear around losing the relationship for so many of us. So we're like, I will suppress all my needs and I'll try to be exactly what you want me to be. I'll pretzel myself into like whatever the perfect, you know, boyfriend or girlfriend or partner or whatever would be. Um, and thinking that it eventually will cause this person to give us what we need and deserve, but it, it generally doesn't. I mean, it generally has the opposite effect because they're like, okay, well, you know, if you're going to be a doormat, I'm going to treat you like one. Well, what's it, I, I guess the, the one part that always comes up for me, and this is so unique to each situation, of course, but it's always like, okay, but where's that line between compromise and boundaries? Because we all know that successful relationships take compromise, but then we're oh. like, at one point, are we compromising our, our, our actual values. Like we're taking it too far and we're compromising ourselves in a really deep way that is actually harming us more than it's helping us. Yeah. I mean, and I think that that's a, that's a, it's a difficult question. I don't know if there's like a, um, like a generalized answer, but maybe like, are there any examples that come to mind for you, Emily, from like your relationship that we could work with? I think that, oh, it's such a great question because I, there were, there were, it was funny. I, I had, because he and I were together for a very long time, like almost a decade, nine, nine years. And I had made jokes early in the relationship, something about, you know, I'm not going to wait uh, X number of years to get married because I just, I had seen other girlfriends go through that where they'd been with somebody for a really, really, really long time. And they were like still waiting to get married. And, and not that I wanted to get married, you know, right away, but that has always been the eventual goal. And mm -hmm it would just keep getting pushed back. I think that I started being told in like year three that we would get married within a year or two. And it took until year nine to get engaged. <laughs> like, and even then it was sort of, and in the moment uh, we were in a, we were already in our crisis right. by that point. And then the engagement happened and yeah. So that was like one of those carrots and that boundary but you know, like you, you can't force someone to marry you either. Right. And, and that doesn't feel good. But at the same time, then you're like, well, you know, he's doing other, all these other amazing things. So I guess marriage must still be coming. Like, <laughs> right. Of course. I mean, how confusing, right? I mean, yeah. you know, you're, you're sort of being told this is being pushed off and like marriage is a tough one because I think like if we were having this conversation, even maybe like 20 years ago or 30 years ago, it would be such a like, oh, well, if he's not you know, if he's not proposing to you within X number of years, then like, he's not sure about you. But I, you know, I want to be open to the fact that some people like marriage isn't important to them anymore. They might have some resistance around it for whatever reason. And it's not about the relationship not being important to them. Um, but that said, like, I think there are other places where there are like signs of commitment, you know, that we can look for. And also like, rather than looking at like sort of the, the facts or the descriptions around the relationship, it's like, what's the communication like? Like, what were you able to have conversations and be like, Hey, um, 
you know, we talked about being getting married or getting engaged, I should say, like after, you know, three years and like, you know, a year, another year has passed or another two years has passed. Like what's going on? Like what's happening for you? Why are we not taking that step? Like, was there ever room for those conversations? Absolutely. Yeah. We definitely have those conversations. And, and something else that I was very uh, insistent about, it was, I said, you know, this is, even though it was funny because at one point I had offered to propose <laughs> because I was like, I'm fine with that. Like, I don't care about like that part of the tradition. And he said, no, no, no. I want, he was, he was very uh, traditional in a lot of senses. And he's like, no, no, I really want to be the one to do it. I'm like, okay. Mm -hmm. But I had a conversation with him uh, at one point that I said, just because you're the one asking doesn't mean that I don't get to be part of the decision. Like right. I'm not asking for the exact, you know, to know the exact moment or the exact details or anything like that. But this is a life-changing decision that we're making and it needs to be something that we are deciding the two of us, not just, you know, you out of the blue popping the question and expecting me to say yes. Right. So yes. we came up with a timeline of, I think it was like within six months of that date. That was like a, a couple years before mm -hmm. I ended things and it didn't happen and yeah. reasons were given as to why it didn't happen. And they seemed relatively reasonable. So that would be like an example of breadcrumbs of hope because I'm like, yeah. okay, well, we had that conversation and he understands how I feel. And this, this extenuating circumstance came up. So fine, we'll push it back a little later. Mm -hmm. like, <laughs> well, and that's the thing too, is it's like, we, so we really want to believe what we want to believe. Right. So like it makes it, um, it makes it so hard to draw a really hard line and set a boundary because especially if you're really empathic and accommodating and placating and like relational, which like, you know, most women are because not only are we socialized to be that way, but like hormonally, we're just that much more empathic and emotional and whatnot. And so it, it's so easy to be like, okay, I understand extenuating circumstance. I'll stay in this a little bit longer. And I think one of the most challenging things that we can do is be like, what is my deal breaker? What is my hard line? Like, um, you know, at what point is this need of mine, like you said, uh, like a non-negotiable? And so I guess what I would wonder for you then is like, what changed that in that situation to change like something that seemed like it was a non-negotiable and really important to you to being something that became a compromise? I, I think that... I, I have, I have been told, and I now see it more than ever before was, um, compassion to an extent that it was harmful to me, like yeah. that it was helpful to yes. others, but that yeah. I wasn't showing myself the yeah. compassion that I needed. And I was giving yes. it away to do him and to everyone else around me. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I, that's something I've spoken about a lot as well is like, you know, compassion to others at the cost of compassion to ourselves. And we should always have compassion for ourselves first. And compassion, there's a yin and a yang to compassion. You know, the yin is like tolerance, patience, love, um, warmth, forgiveness, like whatever, all of that, sympathy, empathy. But the yang is like the stronger, like autonomy, respect, expectations, boundaries, like all of that kind of stuff. And so, you know, I think, again, it's so natural to uh, forgo our own needs for someone else's in, um, in an attempt to maintain the relationship. Because if we look at it from like an attachment perspective, many of us in childhood had to do that to maintain proximity to our caregiver. And that's ultimately where like all this comes from for survival need for our survival needs, excuse me, we needed to um, make sure that someone else's needs were put first because if first of all we we probably didn't have our needs consistently met um and secondly like 
making sure that someone else's needs were met allowed to make the, the relationship to kind of stay intact and us to either not get in trouble or that person to not, you know, check out or whatever. So, you know, obviously like if we were working together, we would probably like track back and try to understand where some of that like suppressing of your own needs comes from. But we need to be able to learn to wake up and recognize like, okay, I'm suppressing my own needs out of fear of like losing this relationship or because I believe their needs are more important or because I think it's a noble thing to do or I think it's a compassionate thing to do or it's what women are supposed to do. Try to like recognize all of those places that we're coming from that are leading to us, um, leading us, excuse me, to make that decision. And then also be able to like take a step back from that urge and recognize like, okay, if this person is not willing to meet this really important need of my own that I've been incredibly clear about. And, you know, if, if a girlfriend were telling me this story, I'd be like, walk the fuck away. You deserve so much better. Um, then what do I need now to be as resourced as possible to basically like break the addiction because ultimately this does become an addiction like the dopamine cycle and the relationship itself like it it starts to feel like we cannot live without it and so being able to actually like tap into our other secure attachments or other places of strength and um kind of come up with almost like a, a game plan to be able to set a boundary and walk away or be able to set a boundary and say like i can detach from the hope or the expectation that this person will actually meet my need and if they don't meet it I have to walk away to ensure that I'm like treated in the way that I deserve to be treated moving forward so I realized that was like a little tangential did that make sense no no absolutely it definitely does and I it's I I just think that that's such a great point too because the other thing that I want to highlight that you mentioned is that feeling like you can't live without the other person yeah and you know we I feel like movies make that to sound really romantic totally but it's not it's it's codependency and exactly and i i do think that that lots of relationships that are that are that are healthy can have an element of codependency because of course you're attached to that other person like it makes perfect sense you should be if that's a healthy relationship but it's a very fine line and the other thing is is that i don't i also never want anyone who feels that way after only you know, a couple months or something with someone to ever feel shamed for feeling that way compared to someone who like, just, just using myself as an example, who is in a relationship for so long. Like, I don't think that the time necessarily should be a factor because I think that, that often people aren't very understanding if we're very attached to someone that we have, you know, only been dating or seeing for like a few months, but it's not about the time. It's about the, the style of attachment and like how involved and invested we get in that person. Exactly. And you know, you don't even have to be in love to have this experience. Like it, it, a lot of times, and I don't want to generalize, but a lot of times when someone finds themselves in this situation, it's a manifestation of what we call the anxious avoidant trap. Um, and what that means, are you familiar with like attachment theory, any of that stuff? Yes. Yes. Okay. So, so oftentimes, you know, and look like attachment styles or adaptations or whatever we want to call them. It's not like these clean little boxes where it's like, okay, you're always this style. You're always that style. It really depends on like, you know, who we're in relation to and we our attachment style changes over the course of our lifetime and whatnot. But ultimately, um, those of us who identify as like a more anxious style, especially if we're in relationship with someone who is more avoidant because that's oftentimes when it gets triggered and I'm one of those people um we uh we likely you know grew up in a situation in which our needs were inconsistently met and so as a result we feel secure in 
the relationship, like when we're together physically, um, but there's a lot of anxiety and a lot of distrust and a lot of insecurity around the relationship, like when we're apart or just really in general. And ultimately, like we tend not to like feel good enough. There tends, it doesn't feel secure. It feels like, you know, for me, I always describe it as like, I feel like I'm always trying to convince people to love me. I'm always trying to like make a case for my worth rather than just being like, I'm just going to be myself and yeah, like take my makeup off before I go to bed and like whatever other. And then again, this is just with this type of relationship. If I'm dating a secure person, I don't act this way at all, but um, anxious people and avoidance or, you know, anxious styled, anxiously styled people and avoidance, sorry, um, are like we trigger each other like massively. And so um, the reason for that is because uh, people who are more anxious in their style have a much like deeper need for intimacy than people who are more avoidant. Uh, people who are avoidant are much less comfortable with intimacy. And so the the person who's anxious wants to like drop into intimacy really quickly. They connect really quickly. Like they're able to um, really like be, be open and sometimes, you know, get uh, described as like ha- not having boundaries and like they want to like, they're totally fine like sharing parts of themselves that other people might not share until like a fifth or sixth or tenth date or whatever. And, you know, they want to like see the soul of the other person and that feels really good, but it also deepens really quickly. Whereas the person who's more avoidant, um, they kind of keep people at more of an arm's distance. You know, they're not as comfortable letting people in and they have their reasons for that too. Most people who were avoidant, you know, grew up not necessarily having their their needs met. You know, I, I shouldn't say at all, but like they, they learned to become very self-sufficient and really to like not let people in. And so what happens when you like bring the, these two together is um, the person who is anxious, who has kind of this like, this insecure view of themselves and believes like other people are really better than them and has like a lot of shame and at their core and doesn't feel like they can just be loved for them and whatnot. Like they're on this like fucking mission to try to convince someone to want to be with them and commit to them. And they're drawn to avoidance because, um, the avoidant kind of like activates an anxiety in them and activates like it kind of confirms some of their beliefs about themselves that they already have. Like I'm not enough. I'm not lovable. I'm not worthy. So they're drawn to that. And they're drawn to this kind of like wanting to basically repair the wounds of their childhood. And the avoidant um, is, well, the reason they end up with the anxious people is for, for two reasons. One is because a securely attached person never stays with an anxious person because they're like, what the fuck? Like I'm not getting my needs met. You don't text me back on time. Like you don't want to like, you know, go on real dates. Like you don't, you're not consistent. You don't want to make plans. Like I'm out because they they have like a much more secure sense of self-worth and what they want and need and deserve in a relationship. So by selection effect, the avoidance end up with people who are more anxious because those are the ones who are willing to stick around. But also the anxious people confirm to the avoidance, like their beliefs about themselves that like, you know, they're strong and independent and like people can't live without them and people need them, but they're too much and they'll always require too much for them. So it's this like, potentially very toxic relationship that if people are like super self-aware and are willing to do the work, it can actually be like really beautiful and it can, it can totally work out, but it requires a lot of communication. It also requires the acceptance that your intimacy needs are totally different and probably never will be the same. And the anxious person will always probably feel like they're never um, deepening the relationship as much as they want to. And the avoidant person will always feel like they're not able to give to their partner like what their partner needs and so there there can be a lot of discomfort in there um and if you're not aware it's just like a disaster it's like this kind of push pull dynamic where you know the anxious person is like hey i i need more and then the avoidant pulls back and then the anxious person like 
tries to like go even closer and shows up at their door, you know, or like, like, you know, demands to spend more time with them and becomes like, quote unquote, needier. And it's just like a disaster. And so then eventually the anxious person will kind of like pull away and give up and kind of protest or whatever. And the avoidant will slowly finally come back once they realize they missed them or whatever, and they've recalibrated and they feel like in control and stuff again. So, I mean, this is like, avoid or excuse me attachment theory is like so huge and so important and like I think everyone should learn about it it's way more information than what we're going to talk about in like a, a podcast but for anyone who's interested like read attached by Amir Levine and Rachel Heller or um wired for love or wired for dating which are both by Stan Tatkin um and like start to educate yourself a bit more on attachment theory and you will understand so much more closely like why you respond in the way that you do to certain partners and like what to do instead to try to move closer to secure attachment. That I, I really want to make sure that people, uh, you might, everyone listening might need to like scroll back and listen to what you just said again, because you had so many important points in there. And by the way, for anyone who wants to check out those books, I will make sure to reference all of that in the show notes. So everybody can go check those out. So I think it is really important to learn about. I, I've learned so much um, about myself by learning about attachment theory. And the, the biggest thing that I want to highlight from what you just said was that ultimately we're really just looking to confirm what we already believe about ourselves, because that's much easier to believe than to believe that, you know, if we think really poorly of ourselves, but someone else thinks that we're awesome, that's almost harder to believe. And then you can almost end up going into like, you know, self-sabotage to an otherwise great relationship or, yeah. Something else that I feel like, I mean, like we, we need to, I think we should go down the self-sabotage rabbit hole as well. Then there's also this whole idea of like, when somebody says in a relationship to the other person, I don't deserve you. I have very mixed feelings about that because I've, I've experienced this so many times and where I've been told, Oh, I know I don't deserve you. And my Mm -hmm. first thought is always like, oh no, of course you do, you know, but you're, you're so amazing and blah, blah, blah. So it feels like a manipulation because it's as though they want the validation. So they're telling me I don't deserve you in order to get it. Totally. Well, and that's, I think that's such a good point because it also relates to, yeah, what you were saying before and some of the other reasons that we, we confirm the beliefs we already know about ourselves, like one, or that we already think about ourselves, I should say, um, like this is something that's very relevant for me right now. Like I'm literally living this at this moment and really starting to, because I just got out of a relationship that was very similar to the one that we're talking about. And I I'm starting to like, try to really be honest with myself about like, why, like, what am I, why do I keep replicating this pattern? Like, yes, there's the attachment stuff, of course, but what else is there? Like, am I actually ready to be loved? Am I actually ready to be seen? And it's really vulnerable to, be in a relationship in which someone fully sees us for all of our imperfections and our shadow side and accepts us and loves us. And that stuff bubbles up to the forefront. And it's deeply, um, it, it feels deeply uncomfortable if we've lived our entire lives with a lot of shame around certain aspects about ourselves. And I think like with regarding the, I don't deserve you comment, I don't know for sure, but my instinct with that, um, which is another uh, one of the sort of theories I have about myself and why I keep dating emotionally unavailable men is there's a lot of discomfort in committing to someone or dating someone whom we really like respect and admire and see as the really good person who not only will like hold a mirror up to us and call us out on our bullshit, but when we are not, um, 
confident in our ability to commit or be faithful or meet someone's needs, it's deeply vulnerable because it's an opportunity for guilt, right? And guilt is a deeply uncomfortable emotion, guilt and shame. So guilt, like I've hurt a person and shame, like I'm a shitty person, you know, like I'm not good enough to, uh, you know, I, I haven't been able to, I can't be a good partner or whatever, right? So guilt is usually kind of like about a behavior and shame is usually more about like how we actually like view ourselves as good or bad. And so my, one of my theories is like, and well, I mean, it's probably not my theory. I'm sure it's someone else's theory, but like, is we continue to date people who don't necessarily meet our needs. Um, well, one, because, you know, then we never have to be fully vulnerable and we never have to fully need and we can keep the focus on them and whatnot. But this whole, like, I don't deserve you piece if we date someone who we like really, really admire and respect and we know is like legit as fuck and we end up cheating on them, leaving them, not meeting their needs, um, hurting them, it is so uncomfortable to have to sit with the guilt and the shame of working through like of, of that experience. Because especially as women, we are socialized to believe that we are relational, we are nurturing, we are loving, we are caring. And so, I mean, the, it is incredibly uncomfortable to have to negotiate the dissonance of, of hurting someone and of fucking up. And so when you date someone who is emotionally unavailable or gives you breadcrumbs, you don't have to worry about that. You're never going to feel guilty. Eventually you can walk away or it will end or whatever. You never have to be into that place of vulnerability of with the person whom you believe you don't quote unquote don't deserve that ultimately like the reason you're saying I don't deserve you and I don't want to take the risk in this relationship is just because I don't trust that I can commit and I don't want to be with you because there's the potential for me to feel really guilty and ashamed and like a bad person when I inevitably fuck things up because I don't trust myself. That's such a beautiful, beautiful explanation. And I, especially the part about differentiating between guilt and shame, because for anyone who isn't familiar with that, I just think that that's such an important part of the human experience is figuring out the difference between those two, both in ourselves and seeing it in others as well. And as much as, you know, the, the, I don't deserve you can be a manipulation, kind of like you said, I also have kind of a lot of, this is where the compassion piece comes in. I, I have a lot of compassion when somebody says that, because if they say it in a way where I can tell, or, or at least I, I think I can, I feel that they're being really genuine about that and that they truly feel like, wow, like you're amazing and I really don't deserve you. I do have a lot of compassion there because that's when you can sort of sense that any, at least anyone who's, you know, like an empath or who has done enough work or whatever can sense that there is a lot of shame usually totally. in that saying. Yeah. Well, and I think it's it's not necessarily like an either or, right? Like it's kind of a both and with that. I mean, I think the I don't deserve you, there's there's a lot of truth in that. And then there's also the the subtext is I'm not that into you or I don't think I can commit to you. Yes. And and I mean, oftentimes the reason for that is is like the reasons just mentioned, but also because maybe you don't activate the kind of anxiety in them that they're looking for. I mean, like this the the, the classic example, like using my myself as an example, is like there are a lot of really amazing, nice, secure guys who are wonderful and would be amazing life partners and I know would be faithful and loving and caring. And I both feel like I don't deserve them because of some of my own shame and whatnot, but also because I know that I would probably hurt them. And I know that I would probably hurt them because they don't activate the anxiety in me that I attribute to arousal 
that happens in the anxious avoidant relationship. So I continue to date emotionally unavailable men because they activate an anxiety in me and play into this whole, let me convince you to love me. That was my experience with my dad growing up that I was always trying to, you know, let me be an, you know, dad, dad, I got an A, dad, I scored a goal. Dad, will you come watch one of my games? Like I have that same experience in these relationships with emotionally unavailable men. And the work that I'm doing right now is trying to end that cycle of validation rejection, the dopamine hit that is so addictive. I mean, like it's really, really difficult to step away from and try to sit with the discomfort of being in a more secure relationship with someone who's actually reliable and consistent and like isn't playing games. And there's sort of a, there, there can be like kind of a grief or a dullness in that, right? Like it's like anytime you break an addiction, I mean, it's, it's really like, there's like a, it feels kind of boring. It's like if anyone's ever given up caffeine, I mean, like I, I don't really drink much caffeine anymore. Um, and I miss it. I miss it so much. I mean, caffeine is great. And, and every once in a while I'll have a cup of coffee or, you know, whatever. And it's like, I'm, I'm high. I'm like, Oh my God, I can do anything. I'm on top of the world. This is amazing. Right. Um, but there's sort of like a dullness or a consistency or a stability that in which I, I really miss that kind of high of the caffeine. But what I don't miss is you know, the hormonal problems that caused me, the sleep problems that caused me, you know, the mood changes, the focus that kind of like spiked and decreased and whatnot. And it's the same thing with these relationships. Like we have to look at them like drugs. We have to look at them and be like, look, it is really hard to give up that dopamine hit. And it is, I will say like firsthand in my experience right now, it is very uncomfortable getting back out dating and being super honest with myself about um, feeling drawn to, you know, the dudes who kind of make me feel like shit, but give me like little like breadcrumbs of hope here and there. They give me that high and getting on that roller coaster um, versus someone who's like genuinely interested in me and like maybe sees a future with me. And like the other couple things I'll mention like before we wrap up is like, I think there are other aspects even beyond like the anxious avoidant trap that's happening there for me. Like for me personally, and I don't know if anybody else can relate to this, but like I have a lot of death anxiety. Like I'm very aware of my mortality and it really scares me at times to think about like life passing by. And part of that is just because I like love my life so much, but part of it is, you know, probably also related to like, you know, the anxious attachment and, and the thought of like the aloneness or the existential aloneness, you know, related to death, whatever. That's a conversation for another time. But ultimately committing to a relationship, the thought of committing to a relationship like for life or like a long-term partnership and moving into another chapter of my life that may or may not involve children and, you know, again, like like living together and all that kind of stuff and making compromises. It's really like confronting and scary in many ways. And it's uncomfortable on a number of levels. And one of it is, yes, like it's a reminder of my mortality and also like it's a, it's a massive change, you know? Um, and, you know, the other thing actually, it does still relate back to attachment, but for any of us who've experienced trauma, um, I don't know if you're familiar with polyvagal theory, but like for any of, of us who've experienced trauma, the thought of actually being in like a secure, calm place can be very uncomfortable because what it reminds us of is something we call parasympathetic shutdown, which is like the freeze response that many of us as children experience because the freeze response is like, I mean, it's the most kind of like primal or the oldest form of a response to, to trauma, but it's also what a lot of kids do because we're not strong enough to fight or, and you know, we're trapped. So we can't really flee our situations a lot of the time. So the calm that we might experience in a relationship or even just in daily life feels very uncomfortable. So what we do is we seek out 
places that that um, switches into like a parasympathetic or excuse me a sympathetic state which is like fight or flight and that's where like a lot of people who are kind of like go 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 and they're always doing something or for me I'm always listening to music or like you know I've kind of always like I have a lot of problems with stillness being in a really secure relationship that's like calm and still can actually feel terrifying so being in a relationship that causes anxiety actually feels more comfortable or you know familiar or whatever than if we were in this place of like security and we have to both like sit with that discomfort and then also maybe like confront some of the other things that we've been avoiding that um sort of like a, a, a shitty relationship is almost like a self-harming distraction from. So um, those are just a couple of other things that I wanted to say, like that I think do contribute to this cycle. And I think like really it's super important for anyone who relates to this to just be so honest with yourself and really compassionate too, right? Like all of this come, happens for a reason. Like at one point it was adaptive. At one point our way of relating in relationships and putting up with bullshit or like, you know, if it was familial initially or, you know, with like a, I don't know, a teacher or a coach or a, you know, another romantic partner or a friend or a sibling or parents or a babysitter or whatever, that way of relating was adaptive at one point and it did lend to our survival. And now it's about recognizing like, okay, yes, it's still um, serving me in some areas and maybe it's not in others. And, and also asking yourself, like, am I actually ready for something? Am I ready to be loved? Am I ready to commit? Like, that's another question I'm asking myself. Like, yeah, I'll be 33 shortly, but like, I also question as to whether or not I actually really am ready for something. I don't know. Um, so I think like, I, I hope to model for people, even though, yes, I'm a therapist. I have seven years of education. I have like more than a decade of experience working with clients. Like I'm a quote unquote dating expert because I will help you get over your fears of dating. But I also, you know, there is no exact strategy. It's all about being able to like really become honest and aware with yourself and then try to do something different so that you can learn more information and, you know, kind of iterate from there. So again, major tangent, anything you want to like banter on further from there, Emily? Oh my gosh. You, you just released so many amazing things there. I, I can relate to so much of what you said, like between, uh, looking for approval from a father you did, I'm going to reference the uh, Instagram post that you did, uh, on father's day about yeah. your situation. Um, I have something similar, like different, different reasonings, but overall very similar situation and, and choices that you and I have both made. And I really see that come up a lot. And the other thing is too, is just really highlighting for people that it can feel very unsafe when you are in a relationship yes. that it doesn't, that there isn't the drama. Right. And you're like, this is, whoa, yeah. what's happening? Like, exactly. Is and this, this is why a lot of people like see a lot of people who've had trauma and look, we've all had trauma, right? Like I think trauma is one of those words that like, is like, it feels really scary and has this like really intense connotation. And I don't want to like, I mean, there are obviously varying degrees, but most of us have had some kind of relational trauma because everyone is human and parents are human and life happens and people fuck up and like our needs aren't met in various different places. And so, you know, depending on how that's impacted you or how you've responded to it, um, like a lot of people, when you see them like um, engaging in like risk-taking behaviors, like part of that is because risk actually feels safer. It keeps them in a fight or flight response rather than going into that parasympathetic shutdown. And so whether it's like always kind of like being go, 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 and never sitting still, or whether it's like really liking skydiving or, you know, like um, roller coasters or doing some, or, you know, some, for some people it's, it's much more harmful behaviors of, of, you know, engaging in like risky sexual behavior or, you know, going to like dangerous areas alone or whatever. Like, you know, I know for me, 
when I was younger, I used to always like sneak out and walk at night. Like, and I look back and I'm like, oh, I think I was like kind of trying to get into that fight or flight place because that felt better for me. Um, but, um, but you know, I, it's like we, so many of us do that. And ultimately like it's, it's learning how to actually be with stillness, which is so uncomfortable. And I actually just like, I think I just wrote about this the other day, like we glorify productivity, but actually it's stillness that's really hard for a lot of people. So even being able to just sit for a moment and quiet, or if you need, you know, for me, sometimes it's like, okay, put on a bit of like piano or something in the background and you can still have like a little bit of distraction and stimulation, but just trying to take it down a couple notches. Um, and, see what it's like for you to just kind of like be with yourself, be with your emotions, be with that discomfort and see what's coming up. And the more we practice that and the more we become resourced like internally and externally through coping mechanisms, through friends and supports and resources and whatnot. I mean, that's how we at least can just be curious and be researchers of our own experience and then see like, well, let me just see what it would be like to date someone or give a person another chance like after the first few dates who we might see initially as kind of boring um, because that's how we tend to see secure people if we're attracted to avoidance is we tend to see, you know, the people who are secure and reliable and who, you know, text after the date and want to meet up and want to make a plan. Even like on the first date, they want to make a plan for the second date. And we're like, whoa, 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 what's going on here? This is crazy. This guy's like too into me. And it's like, no, no, that's actually like a normal, secure, healthy behavior. But we become so accustomed to the breadcrumbs of hope and so addicted to that cycle that it feels really foreign. So I would just encourage people to like try doing something different and just like gather information. Those are such great examples. I, I hope that everyone is really listening to this because you have just dropped so much into this episode and we're, we're going to start wrapping up because I know that you have a hard stop. Um, but tell us where everyone can connect with you. Obviously everything will be referenced in the show notes as well, but I know you're also working on a book, which I can't wait to yes. get my hands on when you're ready. <laughs> yes, yes. I know it's so funny too. And I'm like, I am, I absolutely am working on a book and I don't know when it will be finished, but it will be finished at some point. But you know, um, I, I hope sooner than later, um, in the meantime, yes, absolutely connect with me. Um, Instagram is kind of where I put my, my thoughts when I have them. Um, it's at Megan J. Bruno, M-E-G-A-N-J-B-R-U-N-E-A-U. I'm sure it'll all be in the show notes. Um, you can send me an email, Megan at MeganBruno.com. Uh, my website's just MeganBruno.com. I'm on Twitter. Uh, what are the other ones? LinkedIn, Facebook, all of that kind of stuff. Um, you know, but yeah, absolutely like reach out and, and, uh, yeah. I mean, if there's anything I can clarify or point you in the right direction of resources and stuff like that, um, obviously like I find all this stuff just so fascinating and I'm like right here with you, you know, I, I have the luxury of it being my career. So I, I like probably can put more time into like the research and the, the, um, observation of it all. But I think like if we all just found like a little bit of time to reflect on this stuff or see a therapist or, or a journal or whatever, it can make a, a big change. And, and yeah, and I mean, I still, I do see clients still like kind of here and there. So if you're interested in working with me, of course, reach out. Actually, I have a, a super quick question. I've, I've got one, one question that I always wrap up with, but I have a super quick question that I just thought of as you were talking was, do you ever feel like since you are known as like the, the a dating expert, that there is any type of fear associated with getting into a really serious relationship because it's so closely tied with your career that you feel like that could have a like a negative it's, impact? So it's so funny you say that um, because it's not so much that, but I have reflected on that. And I wonder for me personally, and this is like, you know, this will be like the kind of like big question to leave people with or before your other last final question. But basically, um, 
I do sometimes wonder if for me, uh, there is kind of a safety and a comfort in always kind of embodying like the perpetually kind of like heart hurt person. You know, it gives me a lot of information to write about. It's like kind of spiritual. It helps me look inside. You know, it, it's an opportunity for support from people. And for many of us, you know, we had to like have a, we, we believe we have to like have a problem to deserve support or love. So one of the other areas I'm unpacking in my life right now is like, huh, like, am I attached to having these, this cycle of like shitty relationships because it, it makes me feel relevant or it's like, not that it's like on brand. I don't think it's that explicit, but more like it makes me feel relevant and it kind of like, it's, it's, you know, it's, it makes for good stories for people and it's like entertaining and it's like a way that I can um, access support and like love from others that maybe I don't feel I'm deserving of otherwise. So there definitely are some questions I'm asking around like, how would things change for me in terms of sure, like my, my writing and my brand and all of that, but also just in the way that I like relate to myself and the world and other people, if I actually got into like a really secure relationship. And so that's just a question mark for me right now, but it's a very astute point of yours. Oh, so interesting. I, and thank you for, for sharing that because that's, you know, it, it's, it's a very honest question and you gave a very honest answer. And I, I really appreciate that. Mm-hmm. That actually uh, reminds me of, I saw Elizabeth Gilbert post something about not needing creativity to come from pain the other day. And yeah, I'll make sure that. to reference that. Well, yeah. And I yeah. thought that was really fascinating response. Um, okay. So one final question, if you could offer people one piece of advice on growing into the best possible version of themselves, what would it be? One piece of advice for growing into the best possible version of themselves. Um, I think uh, my, my instinct there is really just like, try to become an observer of like your own experience in life. Like I, I think that's, that's such a core part of mindfulness and just like paying attention, but maybe, maybe it's just pay attention. Like I think we all focus or excuse me, we all operate so much on autopilot and, you know, for good reason, a lot of the time, and we're not all given the resources to look inside and, um, yeah, I guess this is maybe a two-part answer. One is try to pay attention, you know, try to start paying attention more to your experience. And alongside that attention um, or that paying attention, try to um, cultivate self-compassion, which is is what I talk about a lot. And, you know, another great resource is Self-Compassion by Kristen Neff. That's a great book on, on all about like what self compassion is and how to how to implement it in your life um but you know without self-compassion it's very hard to look inside and so a lot of us remain eyes closed and and you know driven and motivated by shame and whatnot and um and once we start to like give ourselves permission to like be imperfect you know in which i hope i've i've been able to model in this podcast today like yeah like i'm i'm i've got lots of places that i'm questioning and working and learning and growing and confronting you know patterns that are unhealthy or that I see as unserving or whatever. So once we can give ourselves permission to be the imperfect human beings that we are, because really that's the, our common, um, you know, uniting quality is that we're all imperfect and we all have room to grow, as you say. Um, so when we, we acknowledge that and we give ourselves permission to be imperfect and we kind of like approach our, uh, 
our challenges or our areas of, of growth with compassion and like love and understanding and realistic expectations and, you know, forgiveness and treat ourselves in the way that we would treat like a friend or loved one, then we actually can look inside and we can admit like, yeah, like this is an area I want to change or this is an area where like I fucked up or I hurt people or I did this, I hurt myself or I'm afraid of this discomfort or whatever. So I mean, obviously I have like a million things I could say, but I think that's the first one that comes to mind. Oh, so good. Megan, I'm just so appreciative of you, your beautiful body of work, your honesty, and just showing up today. Uh, even though we were both feeling like not quite 100%, <laughs> I'd say that you totally nailed this. So <laughs> oh, thank you. And likewise, no, it's been wonderful chatting with family. Thank you for what you're doing. It's just, yeah, super important to, to put all this stuff out there. And um, I'll look forward to us, you know, hopefully connecting further. And, and, you know, when you ultimately are in Vancouver, and I'm back there at some time. Yes, I love it. Oh my gosh, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you so much for listening to the Room to Grow podcast today. I'm so incredibly grateful that you took the time because it means the absolute world to me. For any references in the episode and all show notes, be sure to jump over to roomtogrowpodcast.com. And if this episode touched your heart, it would mean so much if you would take a quick second to hit subscribe, write a review and share on social media or with someone who really needs to hear today's message. It makes such a difference to keep this podcast going so that I can continue to bring you amazing content and absolutely incredible guests. Be sure to tag me over on Instagram at Emily Goff Coach so that I can thank you in real time for listening and connect with you. We're back every Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday with brand new episodes, and I am looking forward to growing with you. Bye.